Welcome to Don't Be Coy. I'm your host, Uncle Lou. And today I have the honor, the pleasure, and the utmost appreciation to have with me today, Miss Aurora Washington. Aurora, how are you doing this evening? I'm fine, Melvin. Thank you for inviting me. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How's your start of the week been? It's Monday, but it's a good start. Somewhat productive. So just to give a little bit of a high-level overview about what we'll be discussing today, this is season two of Don't Be Coy, focusing in on moments of transformation. And one of the things that I really wanted to talk with you about today is just your perspective as a content creator. I know that you've been like making YouTube videos. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that and some of the transformations around where you started, where you're at currently, and then where you're going to in the future. Can start with the first type of videos that I was creating, like when I first made my YouTube channel. And before, before, it, it may be helpful to give like a brief introduction of myself. So yeah. I'm Aurora Washington. I'm Aurora Marie Washington. Um, Biotechnic before, of course, I was at Tougaloo doing my Bachelor's of Science in Biology. I've been doing research for a number of years. And even before doing research, I went to the Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science, and that's where my whole kind of cinematography, videography journey started and where I kind of really fell in love with the art. To backtrack a little bit, the first kind of videos that I was producing was centered around makeup and beauty and cosmetology because I'm a connoisseur of the arts of all mediums, including cosmetology, but also acrylics, um, or water painting, acrylics, and sculpting, pottery. I just love art. And when I first thought about sharing the content that I was creating, it was what is popular, what is marketable, what do people want, what do people compliment me on? And at the time, it was like makeup, and, and it started in undergrad. So I worked on my skills a little bit more and saved up for like cameras and box lights and ring lights and those things, bought a bunch of different makeup, kind of studied the craft, like what people were putting out, the big makeup guru. And that's how I started. So I think my first video was a get ready with me video on YouTube. And for our first video, I thought it did well. I think it got 600 likes within the first, or 600 views within the first couple of days. But my issue with creating a makeup videos, like when I first started my channel was staying consistent. And I think that's something that's still like a bigger issue is like being consistent and trusting your creativity to like material and just like trusting that your audience will come like you won't uh, get a thousand subscribers after your first or second or third or fourth video yeah so i kept doing that i did that for a couple of years took a break because i went to grad school grad school was whooping my butt and so I, yeah i took a break and then at some point i was preparing to defend my thesis and the content that I started to think about or that I was most interested in, it started to shift a little bit from like entertainment to more so educational. Um, and so I went into creating my podcast, Voice in Black Experiences, which is continue to be creative, continue to be artistic and highlight like my artistic and visual skills, but also educate people and help people. Not saying that makeup is not helping people because in cosmetology, it is therapeutic, like getting your hair done, doing your makeup, getting dressed up, that, that's therapy in itself. 
But it's also a group of people, that, which I was a part of at the time, that I felt like there was not a lot of support material that I could just go to YouTube and find. How do I have this difficult conversation with my dean? Or how do I have this difficult conversation with my PI in my lab? So I had a need for it, and I wanted to, yep. So yeah, I created Voice and Black Experiences. The first season, the only season so far, is Academia and Medicine, where I interviewed people that were pursuing graduate degrees or who had just previously finished a graduate degree, both in humanities and STEM, and also medical students, and just wanted to learn a little bit more about how they navigated their experiences in these academic institutions and if they had any tips, like their challenges, some of the, I guess, inequities that they were facing in their departments or in their field in general, and just get a feel for who are the Black scholars in America right now and, and what are we going through. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that overview because you touched on a lot of key things, and I really want to shift to is highlighting the fact towards art. What made that transition? Was it something that's therapeutic for you? I think it was therapeutic for me. So before I, I guess a little bit more about me, is Vernon, Mississippi Delta, one of the poorest regions in the whole country, the United States. And so I can't like sit here and say that growing up was just like this fairy tale. And so like when I went to MSMS, I, I knew I was going for a purpose. I was, I had a lot of support when people encouraged me to go. But when I went, um, I, I realized that though I was competing and trying to keep up with people who curriculum-wise were on a whole different level. That's not to say that I didn't have the capacity to catch up. It was just a lot more work. And also just dealing with just who I am, struggling with where I come from. Like, does that determine my altitude? And just be frank, no, it does not. But it's like still having these thoughts as a very young woman. I started taking art electives outside of all the math and science. I started taking art electives and I found that being in the art studio was extremely therapeutic. So just putting on my earphones, listening to, at the time I was in love with Bob Marley, listening to Bob Marley, sculpting, painting, state when everybody else left and just kind of really falling in love with the words, falling in love with using my hands and also real, realizing that I am a creator. Like I I can create things. I, yeah, I just loved the handiwork of it. So it was, yeah, really therapeutic. And I took an American film class while I was at MSMS as well. So alongside learning these different art modalities, the pottery, the sculpting, the paintings, different mediums of painting. I was also learning about how intentional film is and how it tells a story and just beyond the story, like even using things like light and like the color, the schematics of a set, like small details, like how all those things were important for a story. So as I started to create art more, I started to think about like, what did this detail add? What does this color say? Like, th like this color is representative of something. So like if you saw the color red versus blue, like all of those things can evoke different emotions. So I think I started to give art in different art forms a lot more life and thought. And so when I, like I said, when I wanted to really create content to share with people on a larger platform, I chose like videos and films or 
or like a YouTube video because I felt like it was a, an easy way to convey a, a story, a message, and share and also display some of my artistic I appreciate that because I'm curious whenever you made that shift from MSMS to Tukulu College, how that like environment had an influence on the art that you created. When I went to Tukulu, like I had this skill set, right? I understood colors. I understood palette. I had started exploring my makeup. So I was getting a lot better at my makeup. Also, while I was MSMS, I was, my, during my tenure, the president of our fashion board. So I, like, when I say that I explored art, I explored art in so many different ways. And it's funny to think about it. We had a school that's on math and science, but it's beyond math and science. All different forms of expressing art. And I didn't even think about the fashion part at first, but that, that did play a role in my transition and how I expressed art and what led me to doing a get ready. Get. So, but yeah, like I was saying, at Tougaloo, it was art and fashion, art and makeup, art and hair, art and nails. Like, I've always done my own nails. And all of that is, it was a little bit more expressive because I felt comfortable, a little bit more comfortable. This feels a lot more like home, like Mississippi, Black people of color, people who look like me, people who speak like me, a lot of people from similar backgrounds as myself. And so I felt comfortable expressing myself as a Black woman and wearing my makeup and exploring with different colors and troll looks and trying bold hairstyles. So when I started my YouTube, it showed up as a get ready with me because that was something that I took pride in as a Black woman to share it sorority sisters and friends i would do their makeup i would do their hair people oftentimes would say oh it's my birthday can you do my makeup for me i remember my roommate it's my birthday can you do my makeup for me we can do my makeup for me so it was something when i went to i realized i don't have this community of women to share like these skills and these talents with and to build community in this way of like sharing cosmetology skills or sharing art through makeup or sharing art through fashion or in hair so i yeah, I wanted to take it to a bigger platform where many women, black, white, could watch my videos and learn something from it or just find entertainment in it and maybe try to make up style themselves. I really like that because when you talk about that moment, I'm curious about when you made that transition into like your graduate school program and you were getting like real deep, knee deep into the PhD program. How did that have an impact on not only as you as a person internally, but then also like on the art? I'm thinking about just my art and not the videos that I was creating. I think that art became a lot more emotional in the sense that I, at that time, I only started to create art when I needed an emotional outlet. So if I look at, or if I think about it and look at some of my pieces, they, first of all, they depict black women and not black women going through struggles, but, but pieces where you have to really think about, and I wish I was at home type of painting, um, it's called vulnerability. And if you, when you first look at it, you may think, wow, this is, you know, a provocative and a black pitch, dark black, noir black background and a brown lady, an ebony woman and you only see her backside from the waist down to right above her knees, but she does have underwear on, and underwear are pink, and it's a very detailed painting, so it's nothing abstract about it, and around her body is like a white halo, so it's like her body is emitting light, and I named the piece Vulnerability 
because at the time I I felt vulnerable in like how else do I how do I express this emotion how do I cope with it how do I deal with it like I said for most of my life since I've learned these skills it's, it's been through art it's how I express myself I think when people see them they take it one or two ways like some of this work is very provocative or they have a lot of questions like what's the meaning behind this what made you use these symbols like in a lot of my work I use African symbols like a um, symbol and that's you know, from an emotional place as well because uh, I, when I was in graduate school doing my PhD a lot of people don't look like me a lot and some of the people who do look like me they aren't black Americans from the Mississippi Delta right they're yeah. black in America but they may be from a country in Africa so like they have a close tie with their heritage and they know it where me myself I didn't have this and so I spent a lot of time even going as far as doing a ancestry test spent a lot of time thinking about who am I and is being a black woman that's black from the Mississippi Delta is that enough identity for me to feel comfortable or pride in, like passing along as my heritage to my children. In doing it, I did fall in love with some of blackness in the diaspora, including like West Africa and the Dinker symbols and some of that music and stuff. And so they kind of those kind of things come out in my art in, in my art like that I actually created that I hang on the walls that I put in my house. I like that. Going on to this theme of moments of transformation, it sounds like whenever there was a lot of like self-discovery within that phase, which has seemed to be like a reoccurring theme that I really appreciate about you in the sense of being aware of the present moment that you're currently in and like growing within that space and making the most of those moments. When you speak about that moment of like vulnerability between 2017 to 2022 what was that kind of transition for like your videos oh that was a stark black and white change and it wasn't like an overnight change because i think with my like makeup entertainment videos those there's like a two to kind of like a two-year break where right? i didn't post any and then i came back and I started posting, I think I posted like three videos back to back. And that's when I was like, I'm a plant mom, being a plant parent, getting into growing plants and that kind of thing. I moved into a new apartment. I was, you know, I guess for lack of better words, feel like myself again, feel my most creative self, my most expressive self. And whenever I'm in that zone, I create content, including videos, like just beyond the art, like I think I said my art, it comes from not a state, but just like a emotional state. And I don't go to a camera and ring like when I'm feeling emotional. I go to my camera and ring like when I'm feeling creative or when I'm feeling determined, right? Yeah, there was, so there was this break. There was this gap. If you go to my page, you'll see this gap from probably like 20 until 2020, sometime during the pandemic, around a little bit more. And it went from like mostly makeup videos to, clothing hauls, shoe hauls, those kind of things. And I think that space was just primarily entertainment. That's not even like sharing art with anyone. It's just it's sharing art in like your fashion, right? But not some kind of creative palette that you come up with and use or make a brush. Um, and then 2020, the pandemic happened. I'm not sure what happened in the pandemic, but I, I stopped creating videos for a while after I did my qualifying exam. Um, I, and then on to it environment that I was 
in my lab, it was not a 100% supportive environment. And so there were a bunch of times during my graduate journey where like my direct environment had a impact on like my creativity in, my, in both my art and what I was producing. And so you'll see another gap in content. And, in, and during this time, it's, the pressure was on. The lab people were ridiculous. I don't know how much detail I should go into, but a lot of the racially driven, very discriminatory, very hard and different, difficult conversations with deans and different higher-ups in the grad school. And I would you know, talk to some of my white counterparts, and they were not having the same experience. Like, they were going through grad school, enjoying it, loving it. But then when I talked to some of my Black peers, I was like, oh, no, I did this, too. This happened to me, too. Oh, I, I didn't know what to do, so I just kind of sucked it up. And I talked to some older people at the same time, and they were like, or who had, you know, been through this journey, they were already faculty members or working in Yeah, that happened to me, too. One woman, she shared, like, it was so bad for her that she changed graduate school. So she, she was in one PhD program. She loved, went to another one because the environment was so toxic. And I'm like, nobody told me this when I was signing up for this program. Nobody shared this with me. Yeah. It's not that I'm going through it. They're sharing it with me. And I'm like, this would have been helpful a couple of years ago. Maybe that would have changed my perspective or changed the school I went to or changed what I pursued. I hope it would have. It was during that gap that my, what I thought about most shifted. At first, school and my environment, for the most part, it's always been simple, easy. But in, in this way, it, in, in, but during this time, it became difficult. It became difficult not because the work was hard. It was the people were making it difficult. And so my content changed kind of overnight and very abruptly to educational and particularly educational about navigating academic institutions as a black person, because that's what I thought about the most. That's what, that was the conversations that I was having to have that was, I was feeling most passionate about. And so I, it was educational, but I tried to have it remain entertaining as well. So if you look at the first video in my podcast series, it's a documentary style video and it's full of interviews of people from, with people from the Mississippi Delta, just talking about what education means to them. And it's a wide range of age groups. So it's people who went to school in the 60s. Experience with discrimination is a heck of a lot different from the discrimination that I experienced. And so I was interested in what were their drives to pursue whatever level of education that they obtained. And uh, oftentimes I got these people's parents and people's parents working, some people's parents being preachers and educators. And so and then it was educational, but just as entertaining. I, I guess in the fashion of all documentaries, I enjoy documentaries and I found them both educational and entertaining. So I wanted to move forward with so educational and navigational tools or yeah, tools that's being shared by people. And they also share stories. They tell stories. So if you, I'm sure you can find entertainment in them, but the, their primary focus or the primary goal was not for entertainment, but education throughout the podcast beyond the introduction documentary. What's really interesting, if you don't mind sharing what you've chosen to do with your PhD and what are some of the lessons learned from 
the content that you created and how you apply it today. I did my PhD in biotechnology. The research I focused on as a graduate student was neural tissue engineering, particularly for toxicity testing. So I was creating brain or cortical micro tissue and studying effects of environmental toxicants on them. So developing and characterizing tissues. In, in that space, I was introduced to a lot of cutting edge and emerging therapeutics. But because of my training, Tougaloo College, heart study program, uh, of the ways that I thought about therapeutics affecting or impacting communities, I wanted to know like who would benefit from them? Who could afford these therapeutics? Who would they be offered to first? Who are a part of these studies, right? Particularly for creating brain organoids, I remember there was a time when I started to create human micro tissues and I was using commercial available sources and most were from uh, primarily white, 50-year-old white me. And I was like, okay, so whatever I learned of, about the brain using these micro tissues would probably be more so fitted or more true about 50-year-old white me and not about a 20-something-year-old black girl, right? Or black woman, and so so that kind of stuck with me. I was, I kept doing the work, but it stuck with me. And I remember talking to my PI about it, and she was like, "Oh, you can do a seminar talk about it." I gave a seminar talk about it, and it was very it was so well received. As part of my program, we had to do a seminar talk once a semester for the first three or four years, and our peers in a seminar, the course, they gave us feedback. And of all the seminar talks that I gave, this I had the highest remark highest marks on feedback, right? The most well scored, the most well received. And that also stuck with me. So people want this. People people need to, they want to hear about it. They want to learn about disparities. They want to learn about history of mistrust, why it's so hard to recruit black people of color to cohort studies. They want to learn, just, just learn about it. And so I started to become a little bit more passionate about that. And, but I finished my degree, right? I finished my degree. So I knew it was about to be time for me to look for postdocs, and I was in a space like, what do I want to do? I had an offer in industry. I could have went straight into industry. I also had offers as a, a faculty member to HBCUs, and while I'm passionate about mentoring and teaching, especially giving back to communities, to people that look like me, I'm not to do that right now, and it's not to say I won't go back to it. I wanted to find a space where... I could enhance my qualitative methodology skills and learn more about how to address and write about disparities, particularly black people. And so as I was figuring out what does this look like, like am I pioneering? Does this already exist? I ran across bioethics and studying the ethical issues as they relate to biomedical sciences and biomedical research. And I applied to a couple of different programs, but the one that I kid you not, that I literally was writing in my Bible, God, please, let this second one. But my number one choice was here at UNC Chapel Hill, um, doing a clinical ethics and social implications of precision medicine postdocs. And that's a lot. But in essence, I worked for the ethics committees, or primarily physicians say that the ethics, the best practice to take for a certain circumstance, what's most ethical, what's most practical, what, what, what do you think would be best? It's just giving everything the ethical, legal, and social implications of precision medicine. So precision medicine is broad, but the area of precision medicine that I'm most interested in 
is predictive biology, both in genetics and neurodevelopmental research. I'm still like my best. I, I could be here doing like I could be in this space if I had done maybe a philosophy or sociology, but the perspective that I have coming from a basic science background is invaluable. What is triggering your creative brain, the education needed for a disparity perspective for individuals who may look like you? So now as a postdoc, there are a couple of outreach efforts that were initiated before I got here, but since I've been here and, you know, just sharing a little bit more about my experience in my I've volunteered to create a module where it's, it's around the ethical, legal, and social implications of genomics research. Mm -hmm. And this module is a part of this uh, program called Par Paradigm. It, it, you go out and you give seminars to students at HBCUs and community colleges. And so as the creator of this module, of course, I'm going to address the mistrust that people of color, particularly research or genetics and eugenics and just all ethical issues as it relates to biomedical issues, right? So that's one way that the space that I'm in now is kind of shifting the what I want to create, both educational material and even videos. I'm thinking about, like, how do I create a theme, a cohesive set of videos and interviews where I tell the story of mistrust or the history of mistrust and not only just share it but also start to think about ways to build trust in communities where it's lacking and even now when I speak to new peers and colleagues within this field I always ask these questions I ask these questions over and over and what I'm finding is that there's no one way to do it. There's no straightforward answer. And a lot of times it's not something that people are thinking about. I've even heard some people say, yeah, I, yeah, trust needs to be built. We need to not only write about and be scholars in this field, but we need to do actionable things. But I don't think that I'm the person that should be doing community engagement because that's not my wheelhouse, right? So it's like, but you'll publish a paper and get married and get promotions and blah, 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 blah talking about black people, like anti-black racism and how it contributes to disparities in, in healthcare. But you don't feel like you have enough anything to offer to a community to potentially help them, right? So to me, there's a disconnect. And how do I negate, circumvent this disconnect? How do I change it? I'm unsure yet, but I do think that talking about it is one way to do it and talking about it with people with people from this field this background which just to say i've just joined this field like two months ago but i've already been to one conference and at that conference i noted bioethics is predominantly white how is that so like where are the black people where are the black and it's something i talk about as soon as i came back while i was there i was talking like where are the black people where are the black people where are the black people yeah. every how did I go to? It's about, you know, oh, about maternal mortality, infant mortality. Black women have the worst maternal mortality rate. Infants died, black infants died at a higher rate. You talk about being prenatal care access. Black people always get the short end of the stick. And so people talk about it. And I can't escape it. Like, no matter what, I go to black people who are diagnosed with autism at a later age. On average, black women particularly get the worst in it. Not only are black people diagnosed later than their white peers, but women are also diagnosed, or young girls are also diagnosed later than their male peers. I, I can just keep going, like careers and partnerships. It's just like 
no matter what I enter into, whatever topics or space I enter into now, looking at it from the lens of emphasis and as a public health lens as well, you always have to, people always talk about how Black people are getting the short end of the stick. And yeah, I don't know. I think I'm saying all this to say that moving forward, the kind of material that I create, both in front of the camera as a podcast producer, host, content creator, it, it will focus on these topics and these subjects and not only just talking about them and sharing, but I want people to, so I want to invite people on my podcast who also think about action and who are doing action, who are volunteers, who are working in this space. And who have who also have platforms to talk about it themselves, right? And I will continue to create content, educational content, whether I share it online or not for students. It's something that I've always done. I continue to be passionate about. Yeah, that's how this space. I, I think I started talking a lot because this. I've, I found myself being really passionate about this right now, like um, just like Black people's health in America. But as a Black woman, she's going up really influenced where I am today. And I oftentimes didn't have a word or even know that it was not normal, right? That the majority of people that I grew up around, the elders had diabetes. I'm thinking like, oh, this is just an old folks disease. Nah, it's not an old folks disease. Yeah. It's a older women and men disease because of lack of access to nutrition nutrition is food and also not even just knowing like lack of education and resources, right? Keep going back to being in front of Mississippi Delta because it, it really shaped who I am and what I'm passionate about today. That's really beautiful. And I really appreciate you sharing that with me. It showcases the work that you've done for not only yourself outwardly, but also internally as well. I just really want to just thank you for just sharing all of this and taking the time to talk with me today. Not going to lie, I'm crying a little bit because it's beautiful to see the growth that you've had since the last time we saw each other. And I'm really glad to see that you are in the place that you're in now. Thank you, Melvin. That means a lot to me. Yeah, I'm glad we had an opportunity to catch up and chat today. And yeah, thanks again for inviting me to your show and giving me a platform to talk. Of course, anytime. On every episode, I have a list of lightning questions. So I'm going to go through these three lightning questions and then let you get to the rest of your day. How's that sound? That sounds good. All right. Do you prefer texting, talking, or video chats and why? I prefer video chatting because I suck at texting. I don't know how to interpret tone from texting. I don't read text fast. Like, I don't see text as being urgent. So where, like, I've had this kind of conversation with my sisters, like, why are you taking so long to text me back? I'm like, I didn't know it was urgent. I read it, and I did something else. Phone calls, yeah, that's my second runner-up. And then video, is because you can see facial expressions. It's easier to interpret tone. You can sense when something is urgent, not only through their voice, but through facial expressions. And just, yeah, I appreciate videos. I appreciate seeing people. It reminds me, you feel, like, more connected, I think. You get a sense of like how this person is feeling, like even the atmosphere that they choose to be in. Bro, oh, you're here. Like, how would this place affect this person's mood today? You know what I mean? So, I definitely appreciate video chatting more. What or who inspires you and why? 
a broad answer is black people inspire me. And a more specific answer is I, I spoke a lot about being from the Mississippi Delta, particularly from Ruleville, Mississippi, which is the home of civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer, who is also my great both biologically and on my mom's side. And I would say that growing up in Ruleville, Mississippi, living, she is my greatest inspiration. I love it. And lastly, on a scale from one to 10, how good are you at keeping secrets? I'm a solid 10 because I don't, I barely talk, I talk to people all the time, but I am very much an introvert in a sense that my phone is drawn up time and when it's not, it's probably a bill later. So who am I gonna tell? Maybe my dog. Thank you. I really appreciate you for being on the show and I hope you have a great rest of your day. This has been another episode of Don't Be Coy with Uncle Lou. As always, I'd like to thank this episode's guest for a great conversation, as well as thank you, the listener, for joining in. Whether you're a first-time listener or a regular, I always appreciate your support. If you like today's episode and ever want to listen to more, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And to join our community and access future bonus content, be sure to visit dbkpodcast.com.